In this week's episode, we're joined by Yvette Spiro, a humanitarian aid worker for the International Committee of Red Cross. Yvette is the recent recipient of the Florence Nightingale Medal, which recognises exceptional courage and devotion to victims of armed conflict and natural disaster. Yvette shares her story and explains to us how humanitarian aid can work effectively. She talks about her career in nursing and what's on the horizon for her in her future. So please enjoy today's episode. Hi, Yvette. Welcome to the Cough Combine podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Cool. We've been we've been chatting offline and we caught up last week and, you know, this is going to be such an you know, exciting story to tell with all the amazing work that you've done. And, and we'll sort of talk about your award um, that you've recently received as well later on in the podcast. But what I always love to start these um, stories with is, is about sort of your early years and, and your journey. And I really love to work through it in that regard. And you know, we were just chatting about grandkids and, you know, traveling and, 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 you know, where we want to go in life. And look, I want to, I want to learn about sort of your younger years and, and sort of when you were coming to the end of school and, you know, what you dreamed of doing in life and, and sort of where that journey left. So I guess when we come to school, what were you planning to do in your future? Um, that's a really good question. And I actually, I, I went to school in an era where it was a lot harder for women. To, to not harder, but it just wasn't necessarily expected for women to have professions. Yeah. And there were certain professions that it was expected of women. And it was, you know, oh, yeah, teaching, nursing, blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> when I went, you know, the careers counselling was with the uh, headmaster, as they were called in those days, not the principal. And then basically said, oh, I said, oh, I think I'd like to go to university. And I think I'd like to be a lawyer because I like to talk. And I, I'm very much you know, what is right, what is wrong, advocating for people, etc. He goes, what do you want to do that for? He said, you're just going to get married and have children. Now, this is the headmaster. Wow, okay, yeah. yeah. So he said, I suggest you go do a Bachelor of Arts. Anyway, um, I ended up, my mum would say to me, oh, I think you'd be making a really good nurse event. And I said, Mum, I don't want to be a nurse. That's for women, you know. To, you know, I don't want to do a job like that. I want to be something different. Well, long story short, I ended up going and doing a Bachelor of Arts, which really, I shouldn't say it got me no move, but it did give me an education. Yeah. Um, and I ended up um, teaching, um, teaching, but in teaching, teaching um, children of different abilities. Um, back in the day when we used to call it intellectual disabilities, now it's, you know, children with different disabilities, you know, different abilities. Yeah. So I started with that and then realised that a lot of my time was spent um looking after their health because these kids also had there were multiply had multiple disabilities physical disabilities intellectual disabilities so i was giving out medications and things like thinking what am i doing this i should have just been a nurse and listened to my mother so by this time i was actually married yep i actually because uh, i got married quite young uh, my dear darling husband and i have been married 45 years this year Congratulations. Um, yeah, um, yeah, my friends say she was, well, actually, people who meet me now said I must have been a child bride. Um, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> not quite. Um, but uh, I made, we made the decision, my husband and I, I said, I, you know, I think I want to do nursing. So that was a big commitment because I had, we had three children under the age of four. 
Um, and I decided that was the way we were going to go. And my husband is, terrific, you know, very supportive. Um, felt if this is what you want to do, Yvette, then let's do it. Um, so with the support of family, and let me tell you, with family, I actually did nursing the old-fashioned way. I was one of the last hospital-trained nurses. Okay, and so that process yeah. was um, just staying as full-time employment or...? Exactly, full-time, shift work um, in a hospital. And you did, um, I think the first six or eight weeks was actually study. And then it was, I think, uh, every so often you did a two-week block and sometimes it was one day a week in study. So it just depended how it went, but it was full-on shift work. It so was, it did, was, that, did that work similar to how an apprenticeship works now? It's sort of like you're starting off with it and then sort of training you all the way through and it's sort of yeah, giving you yeah. more difficult work, I guess, as it goes through. Yeah, yeah, we weren't allowed to. So when I first went on the wards, and God help those poor patients, When I first went out on the wards, we weren't allowed to touch the intravenous strips. We weren't allowed to touch medication. What we were really, we washed the patients. We made them comfortable. You know, we helped them out of bed to the bathroom, all those kind of things. And they were the very, then the next block after we'd done a block to look after drips, then we could, we were allowed to touch them, but we weren't allowed to change them. So it was a very step by step. it was like an apprenticeship, but it was still very academic as well. I did. It was a lot of academic study. You really needed to understand physics, chemistry, biology. Um, we did exams all along the way. We lost quite a few people at the end of first year who didn't make, you know, didn't pass the exams. Um, and you then did, at the end of three years, you did two major exams, three hours long plus practical work, so that you could then finalise your exams, pass, and actually then register in the state of Victoria as a registered nurse. So, yeah, so it was a big, I mean, these days now, thank goodness, we're registered across the whole country, but back then you were just registered in the individual states. So so have you always, as as a child and growing up, did you always have that passion for helping people? I don't know. I must have. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, I think so. Um. It's it's never I've never kind of thought about it. It's just I think the kind of person I am. So yeah. I've never really thought about it. And it's interesting now because um, at the moment I'm I'm helping support my father, who's um, very well. He's elderly um, and probably is he's in the final stages of his life. And um, he keeps saying, "You're so kind," and I'm saying, "What do you mean I'm so kind? I'm your daughter. This is what." This is what you do, you know. I, I spend time with you and I help you and I support you. And, and my sister does the same. And, and my brother, when he's, he's you know, he lives, um, he doesn't live in Melbourne, but when he's here, we do the same. It's, it's just I don't see myself as being that kind of person. It's just maybe it's just part of who I am. I'm not sure. I was going to say others must do and, and we'll get to your awards soon. But, um, you know, you've worked for so long in humanitarian um, and missions and can – before we get on to sort of the Red Cross, um, when was the moment in time that you decided to sort of step out and, and, and sort of get into this field of work? Yeah, and get out of the hospital ward. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to say exactly when, but I I always thought that maybe I could do something more than what I was doing. And I'm, I'm not the kind of person that says, oh, I didn't go into it thinking I can save the world because this is the mistake I think a lot of young idealistic people make and I don't think I've ever been like 
maybe I was a little bit idealistic when I was, you know, way back in uni, yeah. you know, in the 70s. Maybe I was a bit idealistic then. Um, but um, I kind of lost that idealistic thing, I think, quite, and sort of saw reality in the, the way the world is. I thought there has to be a practical way of making changes, I think, and that's where that came. I was working in intensive care, actually, at the Royal Melbourne, and um, somebody said to me, oh, there's an um, open-heart surgery team going to Vanuatu um, in, a few, in a couple of months, and there is a, there's a space on the team that somebody that can't go. Are you interested? And I thought, oh, oh, okay, I'll do that. And so, I mean, a pure volunteer, you guys are pure volunteer, and they're like, oh, my brother lives in Vanuatu. This is a good, okay, I can do both. I can do this. So um, it wasn't just because my brother was living there, but I knew Vanuatu, and I thought, okay, I can do this. And so that was my first introduction, and then I thought, okay, they're doing an amazing job. They do some terrific things, these open-heart teams. They go in, they set up stuff, they do teaching while they're there, but then you leave. So then what happens next, you know? Somebody then goes back in another six months, another year. I felt there's more to this. So then I started thinking, oh, this, I'm bored. I need to look at some other interesting work. So I had a look and thought, ah, Master of Public Health. And so I looked at the, the subjects and topics and things, and I thought, okay, I will do a Master in Public Health and maybe an International Health, and maybe this will lead me to somewhere. So this is where it all started. During the time that I was doing my Master in Public Health, I also um, heard of another organisation, um, a nurses' organisation, that were going in and out of Vietnam once a year um, and, and they'd been doing it for a couple of years already at that time, and now they, they still continue. And they go in to support um, the Nurses' Association in Ho Chi Minh City um, and do some teaching, some cinema, seminars, um, provide equipment to different hospitals in Ho Chi Minh City. So I thought, okay, so I did that for some years, two weeks, um, once a year. Yep. And then I thought, uh, no, 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 I, there's got to be more. I want to do more. And I was very lucky. At the end of my, um, I got a, um, not an internship, but like a UN volunteer role at the yep. end of my Master in Public Health in Hanoi, actually, uh, with WHO. And that kind of, from there I thought, okay, now I need, I don't want to actually enjoy working with the people and the communities, but not the way that WHO works. There's nothing wrong with the way they work, but I felt that I needed to be more at ground level than at a higher level policy driven so that's when I kind of started looking around thinking how, how, what, why. And when I came across Red Cross and I, I looked at what Red Cross stands for and the fact that it's purely humanitarian, it's not affiliated, they're not affiliated with any other organisation, they're not affiliated with government, they're totally neutral, they're independent, um, you know, it, it just appealed to me, and I, I felt um, I, managed, I did get a job in Australia with Australian Red Cross, yeah. um, and I just felt that this was the right place. And I think, you know, out of all the years of working in many different organisations, I mean, how often can you say, ah, I like the culture of this organisation? I, I feel like I, I believe in the principles. So the, the Red Cross has the principles of humanity, and I felt I believe in it. You know, I believe in what they do. And look, sometimes they do things right. Sometimes they do things wrong. It, they, you know, 
It's an organisation. Yeah, and they've got, a, yeah. they've got a long history of doing good as well. I think, is it 1846 yeah. it was established? When? Was it 1846? Oh, 1863. 1863. 1863. 1863. I think I want to read more. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, you know, been doing good for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So it, so I guess that's a long drawn out thing that I've just said. And I don't know that there was any light bulb moment. I think it was just a growing towards it and feeling that I could look. Nurses do amazing jobs, and I and, and I have every respect. The ward nurse has the hardest job of all to be, you know. They really do. You know, they are the front line on the coalface. You know, they're the ones that uh, deal with all the the customers. They deal with your patients. They're the ones that take the brunt also of people's pain, of people's emotions, and um, they do amazing jobs, and I can't fault on that. But for me, I felt like I needed to do something a little bit different. Um, and what attracted me is also to be able to make a difference, not just for one person. When you work in a hospital, yeah, it's amazing. You save, you can save the life of one person. But doing stuff um, with humanitarian organisations, you're often focusing on a population. So maybe you can save the lives or maybe not save the life, make a difference. Yeah. For the hundreds and thousands of people, not just the one person in front of you. Now, it, it's taken you all around the world, and, and we won't talk any specific places or, or, or any of that, but um, I guess do you want to explain some of the type of work that you have done um, with some of the missions? Yeah, so I've, there are different kinds of missions, and I, I first started doing things like disaster response missions, so where um, you may go in after an earthquake or a typhoon and it's emergency response, you go in very rapidly and looking at the population to see, or a community, um, to see what support you can provide. So, I mean, I'm happy to talk about um, specific instances for this one. It's quite easy. I mean, I was in Haiti. That was many years ago. That was my very first exposure. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a that was a difficult situation because that was my very first exposure to work like a mass casualty situation. Um, lots and lots of field hospitals, tents, um, and a lot of casualties, and that was quite different. Um, and we were looking at my role was to monitor staff health and also to look at the disease um, point of view of what was going on with different diseases because um, we were there just before the cholera outbreak. So that was a that was a really tough one. Of cholera outbreaks are not easy to manage. Is it is it is it hard during those times? Um, is there a nervousness? I guess that that you may be infected and, and sick as well, um, because you know you're going in there to help people, but you know surely there's got to be some fear. Um, I don't know. I don't think about that so much. I mean, they they vaccinate you. I mean, we get a medical before we go, and you get vaccinated for health. Yeah. And I must admit, I don't really. You know, I don't really think about that. I mean, I, I know how I manage myself and I know that I follow all the principles of infection prevention. You know, yeah. I wear gloves where I need to. I'm going to wear a mask where I need to. I wash my hands. And part of my role is teaching people to do that. You know, so, okay, so, for instance, dengue fever. You know, um, we actually had quite a few staff that, managed, that unfortunately got dengue fever and another um, disaster response. But, you know, a lot of our role was about preventing it, you know, not just managing it and looking after, but from a population point of view. And, you know, when we go into the villages and we do lots of um, 
different camps and do lots of training. We would, you know, it's about washing hands. It's about cleaning up all the water pots. You know, people have had old tyres and they had, especially after disaster, you have lots of, like a typhoon, you have lots of water lying around. So this is where the mosquitoes breed. So it was a matter of people having to help. We supported them to clean up the old tyres, to clean up all the mess and everything, to get rid of all of that water. And we provided them with treated mosquito nets and all those kind of things to protect themselves. So, yeah, I I guess I've never really thought about that. I've been, you know, I've been very lucky, I guess, because I have, we have had to evacuate staff. Um, and volunteers that have been quite sick. Um, but I've been very lucky so far, I should say, touch wood. Yeah. You know, I, I get the, the, the odd bout of diarrhea, but I've, I've never, um, because we, I was, um, um, I was working with Australian Red Cross during the time of Ebola. Okay. I remember Ebola in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea, Guinea, was it Guinea? Anyway, the, the, the three countries in West Africa. And um, Australian Red Cross, Australian Red Cross, we actually sent um, um, aid workers and delegates across to, um, to Sierra Leone and Liberia because uh, they were the English-speaking places. We didn't send too many to the third country. But um, our staff were involved in um, field hospitals, and they were actually working clinically. There were some that were working from a public health point of view on prevention, um, and then there were others that were working clinically. And um, I was part of the team that actually, um, uh, how do I say this? We were, I didn't actually go for this one, I must admit. They said that, no, I had to be there stay back in Melbourne to help manage things. Yep. We set up all the policies and things for people coming back. And I tell you, there was such fear. Um, our staff are absolutely amazing, but there was a lot of fear in the Australian public at that time and within, I would dare say, the Australian government about people coming back because originally they said that we weren't allowed to bring them back to Australia to do their quarantine, that they had to do quarantine outside of the country. And um, we said, why? These guys are taking every extra precaution. They're in quarantine before they leave. They've done exactly what they're meant to do. They're tested. Everything's done. And then Australian Red Cross will support them in a place of quarantine away from everybody so that they have their quarantine period, blah, blah, blah. No, but this is before the days of COVID. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was, yeah, there was, you know, finally agreed to, but I'm, but, you know, every single state has their own state oh, health department. And we had people coming, going from all different, and I had to negotiate with each different state. And I said to the federal health, I said to them, can't you make Get a decision? <laughs> yeah. They said, no, we can only advise. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So we, we, we managed to broker it and negotiate it, but we had one aid worker, and I will say this, they got stuck. And where were they? Morocco. So on the way home, they got stuck in Morocco. You know, you think, oh, well, how terrible would that be? But in the time of COVID, it's not a good, not in time of COVID, sorry, time of Ebola, when they knew that this person was coming from Ebola, it probably wasn't a good place to be stuck. No. They get to the airport, put in all their stuff, and they get refused boarding. Come home. So I get a phone call in the middle of the night saying, that I can't get on a plane. And I'm saying, what do you mean you can't get on a plane? It's all been agreed to. No, the airline is saying the Australian government won't let me on the plane. 
and that I can't come back. And I said, okay, leave it with me. So, of course, I ring Foreign Affairs Department and blah, 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 and finally get through to the right people. And I said, why are you not letting one of our staff board? And they said, no, 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 no. And I said, oh, and they said, no, that's the airline's fault. I said, no, no, no. She was very clear. Anyway, cut a long story short, basically, I was a bit, I shouldn't, I was a bit strong. I actually said to them, how would it look if, not that I would ever go public on this, but how would it look if we turn around and said, Australian government denies Red Cross aid worker re-entering, coming home. How would that look? Yeah, they were very good after that. You've also, yeah, you've also, so so you've been out on missions around disease, but you've also been out on missions um, in war-torn countries. Um, How's that, I guess, is a different experience? And I remember us chatting about, you know, you actually happen to go into sort of hostile areas and, and talk to both sides and, and sort of negotiate in that regard. Yeah. Um, again, again, another thing that I'd be fearful of, but, but you seem so driven in the work that you do. How, how is that sort of a different feeling in, in those sort of areas? Yeah. So I think working with the International Committee for Red Cross, um, it's a different feel to working in, a, in I suppose, with a, nat- an, a natural disaster or, you know, another kind of disaster. Yeah. So... The whole mandate for International Committee for Red Cross is around supporting, protecting uh, people who are affected by conflict. Yeah. Okay. And this is we're, we're obviously we're mainly talking civilians, I guess. Okay. We are not there to support the armed groups. Yeah. We are there to support the civilians who are affected by the conflict. And there are really strong mandates around that. And, you know, we hear a lot about, you hear, you see on the news every night, there's another bombing taking place in Ukraine and you're thinking, oh my God, the, the civilians that are dying, there's this, I mean, this, this should never happen. Um, you know, civilians are not meant to be brought into conflict. And that's, I guess, part of what um, International Red Cross is about. It's not about stopping war because we're never going to stop. Yeah, me, I'd love to stop the wars, but that's not what it, it's about. It's about protecting those that are affected by war because we're never going to stop the wars. I wish we could <laughs> with all my heart. But so they, they talk about, we talk about, uh, how do I say, the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. So, you know, civilians should never be targets, but it's not just civilians that shouldn't be targets. It's their property. It's their homes. You know, it's their, their infrastructure, um, doctors and nurses who look after civilians or look after the wounded. So the wounded should never be targeted either. So once a soldier is wounded, they are no longer a soldier. They have to be treated and they should be considered the same as a civilian. So with, with um, can I say, I'll say ICRC now for yep. International Community of the Red Cross because it's just shorter. We look... We work with all sides to the to the fighting parties, and because we are neutral, we are independent, we're impartial, so we don't take sides. So to be able to look after the civilians, to be able to look after the, the wounded that are affected, we have to talk with each party to the conflict so that they know who we are, so they know what we do, and that we're not there to side with one another. We're not there to... Um, 
we're not spies because that's sometimes what they think we are. Um, We're not spies. And we also make it very clear that when we talk to them, that the conversation is just between the Red Cross and that in that party. So... How, how do you establish that connection at the start? And yeah. You just yeah. Say, oh, yeah. yeah. So in, in a lot of countries, ICRC is already known. They've been in some countries for many, many years. Yeah. And so they are known to the, to the parties, to the conflict. And in other countries, they really don't know who we are. And they also don't understand the difference. So you could be in a country where you have International Committee for Red Cross, but you also have what's called their own Red Cross or Red Crescent. So, in some, in, that's that's the national what we call the national society, but we're all part of the same family. Yeah. But they they don't know that we have different roles, but we work together. So sometimes they don't understand. They think everybody is the same. So it, it, you really have to be very clear with them. So at very different levels. So for me, at ground level, when I come across somebody, when I, the different parties at the checkpoints and stuff, we, we talk about who we are and what we do. But there's, sometimes there's a time and place and you can't go into a big long discussion sometimes at the checkpoint. It doesn't always work. But then we have different levels, like my, the head of my office, the delegation will meet with the commander in that area. And then the different people, the different, um, there are different roles within Red Cross. Um, there are people who their sole role is about protection. And they will go meet with the different armed groups and the different commanders so that we are well known. So will you, often, will you have will you have protection on you at all times in those cyber situations at the start? No, we don't have security or anything like that. We oh. don't do security in that force. No, there is no armed security guards. Nothing like that. By protection, I mean it's another delegate like myself whose role it is to that. Their sole role is to is to work with the different armed groups, is to work with the different communities, so that they understand what their rights are, what their roles are, and how we can support them. So, for instance, um, okay, uh, one of the things that we do is we provide first aid training for armed groups. Why do we do that? Yeah. Okay, so why do we provide first aid training? Look, we provide first aid training for armed groups, for communities, for everybody. Okay, so if you've got a remote village community um, and the closest uh, hospital is quite some way away, we might go in and it's not feasible for us to set up uh, a health centre because often we would set up health centres. Um, with the local governments, et cetera, we might do first aid training with some community leaders so that they have the skills until more things can be set up. But often we will also provide first aid training to armed groups. And the whole idea of that is that they also need to be able to, to look after their wounded because their wounded need, okay. Now, in, in like the Australian Army, they have their own medics. They, they have very advanced first aid training. But in some yeah. of the countries we go to, that doesn't exist, you know, and they're just thrown a, they might, they'll be lucky if they get thrown a first aid kit and off they go and off you are, off to the front. So basically we will offer them first aid training, which they're very grateful for. So we provide it, but at the same time, our diplomatic type people, our protection type people will also come in and they will then discuss with the commanders, with the, the troops about what's called the rules of war, the rules of engagement. And that's 
to do with the Geneva Convention. So there are rules of war. There are rules of engagement. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, there are things that you can do and what you shouldn't do. So therefore, you should not be bombing a hospital. Okay. Do you, do you find but these things are upheld in your experience? No. Yes and no. And this is the thing. We always talk about this is the problem. So yes and no. How do I say this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've seen it. Uh, look, I've seen the worst of devastations. I've, I've seen it when when different parties have targeted, okay, um, health centres, they've targeted hospitals. Okay, they have not been discriminatory. So the, the arms of war and the rules are that they're meant to be discriminatory. You're meant to discriminate between civilian and non-civilian, but sometimes they don't. Yeah. Okay. And also it's meant to be proportionate. So your collateral damage is meant to be proportionate. You see, I don't want to go into all of that now, but you always see the worst of the worst, okay? When you see on the news, you see the things that went wrong. You see what they did wrong. It's not very often that you hear the good news stories where international humanitarian law worked. So I know it works sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. So, okay, so... I was in a country where you had several different parties to the conflict. There was a front line, okay? So on the other side of the front line in the rebel-held area, there, there had been a, they'd been doing, they'd been bombing from the um, state troops. They had been bombing. Um, and there was a village on market day that was bombed. And it was bombed, you know, like midday on market day. The um, armed groups who were said, oh, it was a training camp. So they felt that they had done the right thing because they said that because it was a training camp, so this is where they, I'm talking the rules of war, they yeah. said because it was a training camp, they're allowed to bomb. However, you know, was it a training camp? Was it not a training camp? Yeah. Was Red Cross we knew that there were casualties. We got the call. Um, so you've, you've got a violation, maybe, of international humanitarian law, unfortunately. However, we got the call, um, desperate calls from the village. People have managed to get out messages. It was about 20 kilometres from the capital. There was desperate calls to get out. We have, we've, we've got people, we've been bombed. There are people dead. There are people dying. We need help. We can't come through, we can't get to the hospitals because of the checkpoints, we can't cross the lines. And they were calling the Red Cross Society and we were um, National Society and we were actually in the same office as them and they came to us and said help. So what we did was we, the different levels of conversation that went on. So normally you would try and get there as soon as possible. If I was in Australia and something happened like that, you're off as soon as possible because you have you respond, it's called the golden hour, to respond as quickly as possible. Yeah. In a war zone, it should be the same, and you would hope that you can. But we had to talk with the different parties first because this was an active war zone. And when we got to the first checkpoint, we could still hear the weapons. Oh. So we got, yeah, we could still hear the weapons. So we got to the first checkpoint, we could still hear the weapons, so we had to come back. More conversations 
going on between the different levels, the different parties. We went back again. We got there. We finally got there. Unfortunately, we couldn't get there on the first day when we should have got there. We managed to get there on the second day. I mean, by this time, I mean, we, we were able. So we basically we got through the checkpoints that had been negotiated. I'm not going to go into all the details, but yeah. we were able to get through the checkpoints. Um, it was quite tense. Um, we had with us. The first time I went in with six ambulances, the second time we went the next day, we went with 11 ambulances. I wanted 12, but they couldn't find me 12. <laughs> okay, we went in with 11 ambulances. They were manned by the um, local hospital and also the Red Cross. And uh, we were able to get in there. It was very tense. Um you know, it was quite threatening, I think, as more so for the national staff. Um, but we were able to cross the line, quiet silence, and get into the village. We were able to um, triage and get people out. Now, you know, the, the hard part of it was when we got there, I mean, we knew that a lot of people already died. And the families... It's just the the whole emotion because they've been waiting all night for us. Yeah. Yeah. That that's what I found the hardest. Not so much the wounded and having to triage and do all of that. That you know, that's my job. It's just the families and the um the emotions that they're going through. Yeah. And they I don't know, I'll be embarrassed too, but the, the African way is the la 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 if you heard them yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh, my goodness, it, that was just so, you know, overwhelming with the, with all of that when we arrived, yeah. But we were able to get out, I think, doesn't sound like a lot, but I think we got out 64 in the end. That's a lot of lives. Yeah, I know. But, you know, it's it's. I wish we could have done more, but we ended up getting six, yeah, six, I think it was about 64, and we, we, we called... Um, snatch and grab. We couldn't really treat on the ground. We just had to get them because we had a small period of time. We managed to get them back to the hospital. So that's when humanitarian law works because all parties agreed that they were wounded, that the wounded yeah. weren't part of the conflict. Yeah. yeah. So, it's so your your amazing work has been recognised, um, and this year you were the recipient of the Florence Nightingale Medal, um, which is a, 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 I've been sort of doing a bit of research and background of it, and you know there's even though there was 32 recipients this year, um, 37, you know, 37. I, I've yeah. looked up two numbers now, but <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't an award that's just given out to anyone, and and I think it's you know it must be said the amazing work that you've done has has now been recognised, and and it must have been an amazing honour to get. Um, you know what? It was actually I didn't believe it at first. Yeah. Because they didn't tell you anything. You have no I, I have no idea. And who um, who who do you know who nominates you for these awards? Yes. Yeah, so usually, um, so it's an international award that's awarded by, I think it's International Committee for Red Cross, the International yeah. Federation for Red Cross, plus the International Council of Nurses. So, because there are other um, Florence Nightingale awards that some countries do, like national, but this is the actual international, and it's actually a medal that you get. So it's it's nominated by your... Red Cross, so the country that you live in. 
Yeah. So Australian Red Cross would have nominated me. But they didn't. They, you know, I said to them, why, didn't, why didn't anybody say? And I didn't believe. And I sent them messages, the guys that I know, and I said, what's going on? Is this true? So then I had to Google it. And my husband said, yes, it's true. It's there. And, There's your name. And I've got it. I've got it here. And what it's for, it's to honour those persons who have distinguished themselves in times of peace or war by exceptional courage and devotion to the wounded, sick or disabled or to the civilian victims of conflict or disaster and exemplary services or a creative or pioneering spirit in the areas of public health or nursing education. The medal may be awarded Posthumous, um, in the perspective of a recipient has fallen on active service. Now, that's some incredible words, and, and for you to receive that, um, it, it shows the work that you've done. It was still overwhelming, I must admit, and I, I kind of, as I said, I didn't believe it. And then I got these feelings of overwhelming and emotion. I thought, how, how can this be? Because I know other people that have received it, or I know of people and they're amazing people. And I'm thinking, how can I be in this category? And then I, I looked, and then the other thing I did was I looked down the list of recipients, and there are two posthumous awards. Yeah. yeah. And I actually worked with people like that. I actually worked with one of those. So it's, you know, without volunteers like that, and the people in the national societies and the volunteers and the local staff that we work with, so it's not just about people like me, but all of the staff that we work with, couldn't do what we do. And it's people like that that make it possible. It's people like you that make it possible. No, but it's people like that that make it possible because they're the people living in the country, those those guys. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the work that we do, I work with, you know, my team is always all national staff, the staff from that country, um, and, and they, they make it possible for us to work as a team. And, yeah, I direct them and I push them and I do that. But, um, you know, in, in one of the countries, in, in that particular country, um, the staff that I'm working with were also um, victims of, of, the, of the violence as well. They were victims of conflict. You know, they had run, one of them, he, he'd run from his um, hospital for his life. You know, it was yeah. a doctor who'd run from his hospital for his life. So, And yet they were still working with us, you know, and still stepping up to things that I really didn't think that, I don't know that I could do, you know, if I was in their situation. So, yeah, so my, 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 I, I, I will accept this award, but it's really, it's for all of us, not just me. So what's, I guess, on the horizon for you um, in the next period of time? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was supposed to go to Sudan this year, but um, that fell through. So I, I, and my dad's not doing the best. So it's probably a a good year to be um, home in Australia, to be close. So I guess, yeah, I'll just see what opportunities come up, maybe some interesting project or something. I, I, I don't see myself working as a nurse in the hospital again, but I, I'm not ready to um, retire. Yeah. Um, I, I still feel like I have a lot to give, you know, so let's, let's see what comes up. Love it. Yvette, I really appreciate your time today and, and joining the Kofkamon podcast. Um, I found your story fascinating and I've really enjoyed the time that we spent together um, talking about your experiences. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully um, people think good 
of uh, Red Cross and Red Crescent um, because they do do some amazing work uh, in some very difficult um, contexts. And sometimes we think that they're not doing anything, but I can tell you that a lot is going on behind the scenes that we can't talk about. Uh, I can definitely appreciate that. Yvette, again, thank you very much. Thank you. Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.